we're spending this season as a church considering the drama of Scripture, the grand arc of the Bible, which is the story of God's work in the world and the story of who we are as a people. So far, we've heard Alex speak about God's work in creation, making us good and very good with purpose and intentionality made in God's image. And we've also heard how that image was marred, how our first parents ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree from which they were forbidden to eat, and chose a path which viewed God with suspicion, distrust, and fear. And drama is a very good word for what's happening here. As many of you know, my undergraduate studies were in dramatic art, and there's a principle put forth by a Russian playwright, Anton Chekhov, called Chekhov's Gun. And it's a very simple idea that every detail in a story should have a purpose, should be necessary. The example given is that if if a pistol is said to be hung on a wall in a first act of a play, by the second act, that pistol has to be shot. There was a loaded pistol in the garden, a tree from which we must not eat. And true to so many good stories, it is soon fired off. The drama is palpable. But now we have the problem. The problem with our world, the problem with our lives, the problem which is the most foundational problem of the universe. All of our loneliness, all of our fears, all of our trouble and sorrow and pain stems from this unsettling dramatic event, our separation from God, our maker. And how are we ever going to fix it? That is what the rest of this story is all about. People have been made in the image of God. We are good and very good. Our maker says this of us. But we have been estranged from the household of God. We have put distances between ourselves and God's goodness. And we've run far from our father's love and from our shepherd's voice. How could we ever make it back? How can we be reconciled? How can we be a family once again? In the ancient world, family was the most important place of identity, of obligation, of belonging. If you were blood with somebody, even a distant cousin, there were obligations that you had toward them. Despite Cain's terrible question when he murders his brother, everybody knew that they were, in fact, their brother's keeper. Family could be trusted implicitly would be helped even at great cost because family is family. But what if you needed to work with somebody who wasn't your blood? What if you needed to align yourself with another household, another tribe, another nation? How can people who are not kin with each other be brought close to us? This was a problem which was solved in the ancient Near East through this reality of covenant. Covenant was a way in the ancient world for people who did not belong to one another at all to be tied together, yoked to each other. Covenant made brothers and sisters, allies and friends of people who are very different from you. And this is not like a contract that we might be familiar with in our culture. Because in a covenant, both sides are expected to fulfill their obligations no matter what. 
And if either side didn't live up to that standard, it's not that the covenant became null and void, but that the curses of the covenant were put on whichever party or both of them that didn't live up to that expectation. And this is kind of like in the same way that if somebody in your family doesn't do what you expect your family to do or behave how you expect your family to behave, they don't stop being your family all of a sudden. But rather the shame associated with hurting one's own in the community comes upon them. So that's how covenant is. It makes family and our obligations hold even if the other side isn't holding up their end of the deal. There's a curse that will take care of that for them. So we have a problem that we're no longer kith or kin with God. And we have a world in which there is a way to bring people who are not family and bind them to one another. Covenant. And we see in the myriad of stories that follow the fall that our God is, to our great benefit, a covenant God. God is making family out of people who are not family, binding even God's self to people who at one time turned from God and will do so again. To understand the story of the Bible, we really have to understand the reality of covenant. And that begins in these very first pages of the Old Testament, which illumine for us all that we know about the new as well. And just as an aside, if you struggle to understand the Old Testament, you're not alone. I suspect that's many of us here. And I recommend a book that we have in our church library. I think there's, my only slide has this book, uh, The Epic of Eden, uh, where Dr. Sandra Richter walks through the Old Testament as a story about covenants with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and ultimately through Jesus. And she does this in a way that makes it really easy for us all to follow along. So if you want to understand covenants better and understand the Old Testament better, I recommend that book. God is a covenant God. And God will use this culturally familiar tool of covenant to bind God's self to humanity again. To make us family, even though we rejected the family. And this morning, what you heard were, I admit, two very strange scripture readings. One with some animals cut in half, and another with very particular instructions for building a wooden chest. And both of these stories are rich with meaning, which unfortunately for us, we are just a few millennia removed from. So let's unpack them together. In the first scripture reading, the first story, God appears to Abram in a vision and says, do not be afraid. Consolation that we have needed to hear ever since we hid in fear in the garden. And God says, I am your shield and your very great reward. And hearing that, Abram has a question. What reward is there at his old age? Without children, without family to continue the work he'd begun, with nobody to inherit the land God was calling him to, family is his great concern. So God promises him descendants as many as the stars in the sky, and Abram believes God, and God credits his faith to him as righteousness, But Abram is great with questions and has a follow-up. How can I be sure that this land is really going to be mine? Will really be my descendants? And God's response probably seems strange to us. God says, bring me a bunch of animals. 
And then Abram, uninstructed, cuts most of those animals in half and separates the halves opposite each other, kind of creating an aisle. If you picture the sanctuary, half of all the animals on this side, the other half on this side, this is what's happening. Abram knows something about what God has asked him to do that we don't know. It's not explained for us in the text. Everybody knew what was happening here. The Hebrew phrase for making a covenant, like how we might say we sign a contract, is to cut a covenant. Already, if we spoke Hebrew, we might be closer to making sense of this story of Abram. God has requested these animals to answer Abram's desire for certainty. God has suggested, by asking for these animals, that they cut a covenant with each other, that their relationship be formalized in a way that Abram understands. And the way that you do that, the way that you cut a covenant, is that a bunch of animals are cut in half. And still, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Why do you have to cut a bunch of animals in half to make a covenant? This is the surety. This is the curse of the covenant, which is offered to anyone who doesn't fulfill it. We're not family. There's no obligation between us. There's no trust. And so we bind ourselves in a covenant to one another. And as we walk down that aisle, as we walk between the halves of those animals, we say, let this be done to me if I take back what I have given to you. Let me also die as this calf, this goat, this ram have died if the oath that I have sworn is not true. This is the curse that people making a covenant take on themselves. So Abram has prepared what God has asked. He has set up the necessary elements to cut a covenant with God. And then he waits. He waits for God to show up all day long. Birds of prey come and eat the carcasses and Abram chases them off. God hasn't shown up. Then, as the sun sets, God puts Abram to sleep warns Abram that there will still be trouble ahead for his descendants. And then finally, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. It was common for equals making a covenant with each other to both walk between the pieces. It was common for the more powerful party to a covenant treaty to demand that the weaker party walk alone between the pieces. Yet, but it was completely unheard of that the more powerful party should do so alone. Yet this is what God does. All the cost of the covenant, all the curses of this obligation not working out, God takes upon God's self as Abram sleeps. And a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. Symbols of God's presence move between the carcasses of these animals and the God who made all things, the God who is life itself, says to Abram, let me also die if this oath I have sworn is not true. Let this be done to me if I take back what I have given to you. It is not God's intention to extract payment from God's people. 
It is not God's intention that Abram will pay for his doubts that he has along the way and the very human ways he tries to fulfill this covenant outside of God's plan and desire. It is not, in fact, God's intention to make any of us pay for our faults or our very great need for salvation. It is God's intention, even as early as this 15th chapter of the first book of a very long story, that God would pay the cost, God's own self. That God alone would bear the curse. That God alone will walk in our place and that the Almighty would take the place of the weaker party and lift us up. In this covenant, God unilaterally binds God's self to Abram and to his descendants. The covenant expects that Abram will walk blamelessly before God But it doesn't place any curses on Abram, even though he won't perfectly keep this covenant. God alone holds the curse, and God will achieve God's purposes. Not only that Abram will have as many descendants as stars in the sky, not only that they would inhabit a land and have a future, but in fact that though they were strangers and enemies of God, by this covenant they would become the very household of God again. This covenant with Abram is important. It shows us a very early glimpse of how God does not intend for us to have to solve this problem we created. Doesn't expect that we would be reconciled to God by our own power, because we can't be. And has in fact planned from the beginning that the work and the cost of our reconciliation of our being made family again, would be born by God alone. But most people, when they talk about the first covenant, they don't mean this one. They're talking about the covenant God makes with the people of Israel through Moses at Sinai. This is where the Ten Commandments come in, the law of the covenant. With, the covenant, with this covenant, God says, if you keep my covenant and obey me fully, you will be my treasured possession, a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. God gives this law, and the people have broken it before they've even finished receiving it. We've all broken it, not obeyed God fully, not kept God's covenant. But despite Israel's and our lack of faithfulness, we see in that second reading that God is already preparing to make Israel his treasured possession anyway. This is what um, Paul was reading for us from Exodus. God has just finished giving instructions for building a tabernacle, a sanctuary. And he says, so that it is that he might dwell among them. And within that sanctuary will be an ark, this wooden chest which holds the tablets of the covenant. And that ark will be a sign of God's presence among the Israelites. Why is this ark a sign of God's presence? Why is this sanctuary a place that God will meet with his people? Is it just because God says so? Well, that is a pretty good reason, but it's not just that. It's because the tablets of the covenant are inside the ark. Both tablets. When we think about the Ten Commandments and the tablets, we imagine that tablet one is laws 1 through 5 and tablets 2 or laws 6 through 12. We even have a stained glass window which has a similar idea for us. And that makes sense to us. 
But remember, covenants are like treaties. And any good treaty needs at least two copies, one for each party. God's copy of the covenant should stay with God. But it's not left on the Mount of Sinai and is not taken up to heaven either. Rather, it is kept with the people of Israel. Both copies sit together in the ark because God's desired dwelling place is not on top of a mountain, is not alone in the heavenlies, but it is wherever God's people are. So the tablets of the covenant become a physical reminder of God's presence, God's choice to be with his people no matter the cost. In both of these covenants, we see the length to which God will go to reconcile humanity to God's self, to make us family once more. God binds himself to Abram, takes on all the risk of that relationship, and covenants himself to Israel, acting out the blessing of the covenant long before it's been fulfilled at all on the human side of the agreement. God is still a covenant God, binding God's self to us for our good, not intending to make us pay the price for our faults and sins, and in fact, even now, continues to make his home among people, even while we wait for that day when it is fully realized. We can see the fulfillment of these covenants most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ, who suffers and dies for us, and in so doing makes us children of Abram, and and welcomes us as sisters and brothers into the very household from which we were once estranged, by whose covenant work we are made children, though we also were strangers and enemies not long ago. This Jesus Christ, who is the new and better tabernacle, within which the law is perfectly fulfilled, and where divinity and humanity are joined in perfect unity, And by the work of Christ, new sanctuaries are made in each of us, that the covenant which God still makes today may be sealed in our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would dwell in us. All who follow Christ become like Christ, where humanity and divinity may dwell together in one place. Each of us, new arcs of the covenant, made not with human hands, but by the work of the Spirit, until that day when God dwells fully among God's people at last. Our greatest hope remains this great grace of God, that God pursues us though we were far off from him and commits God's self to to be for us even when we're against God, to be with us even when we're still hiding from God, and to do whatever it takes, yes, even to the point of death, that the one who is life would die that the Almighty might commit himself to pay that which we could never pay and walk the covenant way that we could never walk for us in order that we might find home with God once more. God has been doing this work since we first wandered off on our own and will continue this work until that day when every prodigal is welcomed home. This is the story of God's reconciling work which didn't begin on that cursed tree 2,000 years ago, but began each and every time God reached out towards his children again, desiring that we should walk together once more 
And until that time when we were made ready to walk with God again, he gladly walked in our place, that we might be reconciled even while we were still too weak, too far gone, to even dream of reconciliation on our own. This is the good news of the gospel, that God has made a way where there was no way, that we who were once enemy and stranger are now family and friends of the Most High. This is true from the beginning of the world, true from those first moments of grace just after the fall, true in every covenant promise God has ever made, and true for us still to this day. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to invite you to a time of reflection because God reached out to Abram with an offer of becoming family, and I believe God's reached out to all of us with an offer of becoming friend and more than friend family. And so reflect, how has God reached out in friendship and relationship toward you? Maybe that's a long time ago. Likely it was in a new way even this past week. And an invitation as well to pray with thanksgiving that God has always been making a way to dwell with God's people again.